Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This week's bonus episode of Astonishing Legends is our commercial-free, way-down-the-rabbit-hole gift to you. Thanks for listening. Wow, John, uh, he really sold that one. Thanks, man. And we're back. That we are. Time for a special bonus episode on Flight 19. We'll keep the cold open short tonight. If you missed last week's show for some reason or are listening out of order, we just added several wicked cool new shirt designs to our store, so head over to AstonishingLegends.com and click on Store if you want to check them out. Let the games and this podcast begin. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The remarkable part is that we then asked Price to look inside the building and describe what people were doing. He said, they're fabricating a giant steel sphere. The CIA was able to figure out that this was some kind of a containment vessel for a particle beam weapon. Three years later, the Soviets rolled this giant sphere out of the building. Physicist Russell Targ, remote viewing researcher. Join us tonight for a look at how remote viewing the cold case of Flight 19's vanishing might make you rethink how the universe works. Okay, so ostensibly, last week we pretty much wrapped up our recent series on Flight 19. But you might remember that we told you near the end of that show that Forrest had heard an interview on Coast to Coast, which is an AM radio show that is quite famous. The among, largest overnight radio show ever. Yeah, yeah. in history. And a, but a lot of you might not have heard it because it comes on at 10 p.m. and runs for four hours. It's <laughs> yeah. pretty crazy. It, it's online. I think you have to join a membership to hear past episodes. But uh, for you overseas folks or outside of the United States, it's interesting. You might enjoy it if you like this kind of a material. Yes. So there was a guest host on, and she was interviewing a woman named Lori Williams. And during that interview, Lori spoke of a remote viewing session that she was the monitor for in which Flight 19 was the target of the session. Yeah, I was driving home after one of our late night recording sessions, and as is now my custom, I was listening to Coast to Coast AM, because it, it's often spooky, and Lori was being interviewed by guest host Connie Willis, and this episode aired on Saturday, October 1st of 2016, and we'll of course have a link to that episode in our show notes. You can get to it without having to go behind a paywall? You can see the page where it's offered. Ah. Well, let's explain that, you know, as I listen to the show, it's like, I don't know how names are spelled, or you, yeah. you want the facts on it, so it gives you a little write-up of that episode episode. Okay, cool. You'll have to figure out how to get to it if you want to listen to that one. But it's interesting. It's fascinating. It really is. So anyway, the topic for the second half of the show was remote viewing. And the tease for the finale of the show was that Lori was going to share some interesting observations from some of the sessions she's monitored. And especially from a two-week remote viewing summit she just attended that had some really talented viewers. 
Now, apart from revealing what some of her viewers have described as what might be on Mars and the dark side of the moon, which I gotta say really was mind-blowing and will definitely be part of an upcoming episode on remote viewing in general, she was going to talk about what her most talented viewers saw in connection to Flight 19. So, of course, it turned into a driveway moment for me, and it was so intriguing, it wasn't even my driveway. It was someone else's. And that's when Forrest got arrested. <laughs> I, I get out What's of there. What's that guy right doing yeah. out there? No, no, I, I'm... Honey, there's someone in the driveway with headphones on. (laughs) He's staring at us, yeah. You know, I've actually always been interested in remote viewing, but I never really understood what it was. And Forrest, you've been talking to me about it for years, and I always nodded like I got where you were coming from. But uh, frankly, (laughs) if I tried to explain it, I would have made it about three sentences, maybe. (laughs) Well, it's not a very easy thing to explain. It isn't. And there's so many factors that go into how one approaches learning about a subject like this. The first one being for me, am I even going to open my mind to this or is it all malarkey? Anyone who listens to our show knows that we try not to be dismissive of anything because we've looked at enough unusual stories now to know that there is more going on in the world than we can understand. This is sometimes wondrous, strange stuff. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. Nice. <laughs> there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than I dreamt of in our philosophy. Yeah, we're getting all Shakespearean oh, yeah. there. Yeah, or Francis Bacon, that. depending on how <laughs> don't, Oh, don't get that <laughs> Don't get that started. going. Shakespeare yeah. wrote Shakespeare. Exactly. Yeah, man, I hear you. And I, I totally agree. We get that the types of topics we cover fit inside a really broad spectrum. It's not just about legends, but we hope all of the topics are astonishing in their own way. So initially, we were going to integrate Lori Williams' interviews within the context of Flight 19 Part 3, but we found what she said to be fascinating. Regardless of your belief system, it really made me reconsider the relationship between my conscious and subconscious mind at the very least. What I found personally fascinating with the observations was that it sounded like there could be an interdimensional aspect to the disappearance, or maybe some kind of time displacement cause. And yeah, I know that's real forest country, but... Oh, forest country. uh, Yeah, welcome to forest country (laughs) where the the flavor is. I'm glad you're admitting that country exists. I feel like that's a first. No, it's my own personal thing, and I'm paranoid, so I believe that's the idea they're forming about me. Right. (laughs) Just not telling me. Uh, But anyway, I thought that there might be a connection to an electronic fog phenomenon, and that's what I bring to the show, so what are you going to do? After hearing the observations, I still think that there's some room for some strangeness with this story. Now, not only were we fortunate enough to be able to speak with Lori, but we managed to interview the actual viewer for the Flight 19 session, a star pupil of hers, and get him to come on the show as well. And after these interviews, we realized there was just too much material to work into part three of Flight 19, and with a potential dark week coming anyway for my son's spring break, we decided that we would take those interviews and break them out into this commercial-free bonus episode. It's an extension of our theories episode from last week, a tangent that became its own show, if you will. Ms. Williams has studied remote viewing under the mentorship of Lynn Buchanan, author of The Seventh Sense, The Secrets of Remote Viewing as Told by a Psychic Spy. Lynn was part of the top-secret remote viewing psychic spying unit known as Project Stargate, which was declassified in 1995. He'd been one of the unit's remote viewers, the database manager, the property book officer, and the unit's trainer. Lori met Lynn a year after the declassification in 1996. He spent the next several years teaching and mentoring her with the vision of having someone well-trained to whom he could pass the torch once he retired. Since they first met, she has been researching, practicing, and studying the science of controlled remote viewing, or CRV, which Forrest mentioned earlier. 
Over the years, Ms. Williams has spent countless hours honing her remote viewing skills through practice sessions with provable feedback, complete with written summaries and recorded data sheets. And that's a very important part of their process, is cataloging their success rate, what exactly they've done, and protecting the integrity of the data that they're getting. That's part of the scientific method. Exactly. In 2001, Ms. Williams became the first certified civilian controlled remote viewing instructor, and she has taught remote viewing in Canada, Ireland, Russia, and all over the United States. As a professional remote viewer, Ms. Williams has worked with five remote viewing companies and countless corporations in three countries. Lori is a member of the International Remote Viewers Association, as well as the Professional Controlled Remote Viewers Association, or the PCRVA. And she has a track record of 86% accuracy in the PCRVA professional database. Her experience includes working with law enforcement to assist in missing persons cases, conducting professional sessions for corporations that have had a direct effect on profit margins, working on archaeological mysteries, doing extensive life path sessions for individuals, and working on many remote healing sessions. An accomplished public speaker, Ms. Williams has traveled throughout the world, conducting workshops and giving talks on controlled remote viewing, hypnosis, and intuition development. A practicing hypnotist with a large clientele, Lori is a member of the International Medical and Dental Hypnotherapy Association and the International Association of Counselors and Therapists. And it, my wife does not like going to a dentist, so I think <laughs> oh, that might yeah. work for her. No, <laughs> I, I, it does work for some people. Yeah. Yeah, so it's something to check out. I would often like to be in a deep hypnotic sleep for many of life's events. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, well... Well, you are for this podcast. Yes, indeed. I just kind of <laughs> roll through it. Okay, so let's go to the first segment of our interview with Lori, where she talks a little bit about what she does and how it works. I'm on the phone here with Lori Williams. Tell them a little bit about yourself and what exactly it is that you do. Most of my life, I've been a social worker, but I had a lot of experiences throughout my life that I really couldn't understand. You know, things with ghosts and, uh, you know, just kind of precognition type things that happen spontaneously from as far back as I can remember. I ended up becoming a missionary when I was very young and went to South America for a lot of years. And I thought those things would kind of go away when I was doing missionary work, but they actually became stronger. And when I came back to the States in the nineties, I really was looking for a way to understand these things. And I ended up meeting Lynn Buchanan, who was a retired military guy who had been part of the top secret Stargate psychic spying unit in the U S military. And um, in my encounter with Lynn, he was just a wonderful, gracious person, still is, and really took me under his wing. Uh, He and his wife both did and became like second parents to me. I studied and mentored and apprenticed with Lynn Buchanan for, gosh, well, I've been doing it really. I mean, it never ends. And I've been doing it since uh, 1996. That just kind of led me on this course for controlled remote viewing It branched out then into other forms of remote viewing, associative remote viewing, and extended remote viewing. I've done professional remote viewing for corporations all over the world, for private individuals. And I've been teaching CRV and various forms of remote viewing since 2001. Wow. So for the past 16 years, I've been teaching. I teach, I'm probably the most prolific instructor out there. I teach often twice a month, um, and they're usually three, four-day, five-day courses. And most of them are three days. So I've now switched to teaching online, which is a big thing for me because I didn't want to do it for the longest time. And now we teach 
really a lot online because we were able to reach people we never were able to reach before. That's how our show is. We have listeners all over the world, and it never ceases to amaze me what far corners you can get into with the internet. (laughs) I know. The last few classes I've taught, I've had students from Brazil, Taiwan, all over Europe, Romania, um, I mean, Iceland. We've had a student attending from Iceland the last few classes. So, It's really great because you can just reach everybody. That's amazing. Well, one of the things that's interesting is what you said about being a missionary. A very close friend of mine had the exact same thing happen. He had been having some strange experiences, and then he went on a mission for a couple of years. And the things that happened while he was abroad actually went up. It was more pronounced for a period there. And then when he came back home, it sort of settled back down a little bit. But it's very interesting to me that you would say that because that made me think of the stories that he had told me. Regardless of what you're belief system is, the more uh, you open yourself up to spiritual things, the more it seems to open up all those channels. Right. So you have been at it for a while. There's all these different types of remote viewing. Now, for people who have never heard of it, how would you describe remote viewing in general, what, what it is as an act? This is so funny because when it became exposed in the early, I think around 1995 or 96, it was suddenly on Larry King Live in 60 Minutes in 2020 and all these things you know, that the U.S. had actually used taxpayer money to have a psychic spying program. That was a huge scandal. And suddenly, though, a lot of people were very intrigued by it. And suddenly everyone was claiming to be a remote viewer. You know, it's like, I'm a crystal ball remote viewer. I'm a tarot card remote viewer. I'm a palm reading remote viewer. You know, and so that really irritated these military guys who felt they had dedicated their lives to a science. You know, and they didn't want it being ushered into the gypsy tents, fortune tellers and things. Sure. Which reminds me that when my mother first heard about it, she's like, so you're going to be a fortune teller? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, my kids call me Madame Minerva. It's my alter ego. (laughs) 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 So remote viewing has become a catch-all term for anything psychic, really, you know, it's almost like interchangeable with psychic ability or clairvoyance. And so that is kind of what remote viewing has become known for. But truly, there are these different segments of remote viewing, I guess you could call them segments, controlled remote viewing, I like to refer to it kind of like a drawer organizer for that catch-all drawer you have in your kitchen that has rubber bands and paper clips and toothpicks and everything in it. Everybody has those little bottles of glue, half used. Yes. So, so, um, you know, you go to Walmart, you buy a little container, you put it in there, and you've got all these little cubicles now that you can sort these things into. And our brains, if you think about it, our brains are kind of like big catch-alls and there's thoughts flying around in there. And we have the left brain and the right brain and the conscious and the subconscious all interacting. And CRV is really considered an interview and report methodology where the conscious mind is interviewing the subconscious mind and the body acts as a link between those two things. And so when you've got the interchange between conscious and subconscious, you've got all these things, blocks flying around. You're like, okay, is this my imagination? Is this genuine intuitive information? you know, what's going on here and how do I sort this all out? Well, CRV kind of gives you a platform and an organizational way to sort out the information in your brain that's just flowing through it all the time and kind of classify it so you can organize your thoughts and sort intuition from imagination. Wow. How do you control this? How do you determine what thoughts are your subconscious thoughts and what are your conscious thoughts and how do you control that relationship between them? Well, the interesting thing, and a lot of people are going to groan when I say this, but 
grammar has a lot to do with it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Every now and then I'll be teaching and somebody will be like, oh my God, I failed fifth grade grammar. You know? <laughs> but the thing about it is you think about nouns for a second. Nouns are words that name things, right? So naming words are basically the way we have stayed alive as a species, you know, and, and Lynn Buchanan used to give an analogy that Oog and Og were walking through the primeval forest and they hear a twig snap behind them and Oog turns around and says, what was that? Meanwhile, Og is, you know, a thousand miles ahead going saber-toothed tiger. Right. And the ability to identify threats is a way we have stayed alive as a species. And that's what nouns are. Nouns are naming words and they come from the left brain. And if you think about it, a noun is a box in which we hide a lot of information because I could hold up my coffee mug and I could hold it up and say, this is a mug. But you could hold up a mug and say, this is a mug, but your mug and my mug may be totally different. They may have different textures, different weights, different temperatures, different colors, different shapes, right? They could be totally different from each other, but we both said mug. Right. And so right. that word mug just kind of hides a whole bunch of information. The right brain, on the other hand, is the part of our brains that describes everything, you know, just the ability to take all of our senses and all of our ability to distinguish dimensional things. And be able to put those into words that will describe something very thoroughly. Okay. So if you think about a place or a location or an event or an activity that is completely out of your frame of awareness, maybe it took place 100 years ago or even in the future, maybe it took place on another planet or on the other side of our planet, um, and you don't have any way of knowing about this location or this event or activity, and then you as a remote viewer, as a controlled remote viewer, you go in and as different things are coming through your mind, as you're sitting there in front of your piece of paper with your pen, you're sorting out the nouns from descriptive words. Okay. And that's kind of how we start. We go into it with that idea that you're going to sort right brain information from left brain information. All the intuitive stuff comes into the right brain. Do you find that some people have an ability to do this and some just don't? You know, I've never had anybody that could do it. Okay. I'm totally honest with you. Yeah. Now, there are more left-brain people and there are more right-brain people. The right-brain people can be super intuitive. If they're totally, totally right-brain, like if the balance is not in the middle, but really severely right-brain, those people are the people that you meet that are like really, really have a hard time collecting their thoughts. They're always late. Everything's messy. And, yeah. and those kind of people, you've, all, you've met those people. Sure. And then there's the really, really left-brain people who are always on time. Everything is neat as a pin. Everything's very organized. And they're extreme control freaks. And the thought of anything intuitive seems just too abstract. Right. Most people kind of fall somewhere in the middle. They've got a little bit of both. And those people are the ones who will really do the best, the ones who, who are kind of fall in the middle. Forrest had actually, he wanted to know if you had maybe some examples of some of your team's major accomplishments in terms of remote viewing, if you can talk about them, successful cases that you had. I imagine with the corporate stuff, you can't, but maybe in, in other cases, there were things you could talk about. There's so many, I'm trying to think of which one I would want to talk about. Sure. There is an archaeological project that my team and I worked on that is was so phenomenal. Interestingly, it was archaeology that took place out in the ocean. Oh, okay. So with remote viewing, the great thing is, is that when you've really gone through all the basic, intermediate, and advanced stages and into post-advanced, I may be one of the only teachers out there right now that are teaching into the post-advanced, if any, other than myself. I don't know of any that teach way into the post-advanced level. But when you get into those levels and you get to become really 
experienced. You can literally pinpoint a GPS coordinate on a map. And the interesting thing is because we keep the viewers totally blind to what they're doing, completely blind, because if you're not blind to it, your imagination really gets in the way. So if I ask you, tell me what the criminal looks like, the minute you hear the word criminal, you'll describe somebody really sinister looking and all these stereotypes that you have about what a criminal would look like when it might be the little old lady who's been embezzling from the company or whatever. And so in order to avoid those stereotypes, we try to really keep the thing as clean and blind as possible. So the team was completely blind to what they were doing. And they were describing things really close by and some of the uh, landmarks that were nearby. And they were describing things so perfectly that we knew they were really on target. And so we ended up sending them blank maps and the cool thing about blank maps is you can take a piece of paper, like a piece of drafting paper, onion skin, you can lay it over a map and mark the corners that you want the team to view within. And then when they mark a spot on that and send it back to you, you're able to lay it over the map and see exactly where they're pinpointing. Okay. Our team was able to pinpoint various locations out in the ocean, and the archaeologists were able to actually go out there with boats and equipment and all these things and actually were able to locate the artifacts they were seeking. Wow. They prior had no no idea where they were. Right. They did send us a map that had, this is the area that we're searching in. Uh-huh. And then we were able to send blank maps to our team and they were able to pinpoint this. Did they tell you specific objects they were looking for or they just said in this area no, we expect to find? No, no. Yeah. Right. They didn't tell us anything. So that way we weren't able to even pollute the viewers, even if we wanted to, because we didn't know either. Right. Wow, that's fascinating. And that, um, we're hoping, will eventually be a story that will be coming out in the book. It might be a few years because they're still researching and going out and and they're finding more and it's an ongoing thing. You can't be more specific about it, I imagine, at this point. We've actually agreed not to share anything beyond that, but it's really very, very exciting. And what we're hoping that will come out of that, too, is very exciting. So I can't say more than that right now, but we're, we're hoping that it's going to reveal some very exciting information life-changing for some people. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Paradigm shifting, let's put it that way. As you've developed this skill and this ability to do this, and you've been, and you've taught others to do it, how has it affected your personal belief system from when you were younger and before you knew anything about this to where you're at now? Would you say that you've gone through a shift? Yes, I really have. It's very interesting because I've become really good friends with a lot of the guys who were in the original unit. And one of them is Melvin Riley who was the very first remote viewer in the unit. And he said, you know, a lot of guys went into this unit as atheists, but no one came out as an atheist. That was really interesting for him to say that. He also mentioned another thing to me, because I get contacted a lot by people who want me to teach them associative remote viewing, which is the type of remote viewing that is used for winning the lottery or, you know, betting on the right horse, that type of thing, or they want to do better in the stock market. And I get contacted by a lot of those people. But one thing that Mel said to me that I agree with so wholeheartedly is that we found that the people who really get good at this and and really become uncannily good are people who have a deeper spirituality and who are interested in it for reasons other than monetary reasons. And that the people who are interested solely in it for monetary reasons tend to never get deep enough to really get good at it. Yeah, so this would not work for Biff from Back to the Future when he's... Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this would do well at this at all. 
Tonight, I would like to talk to you about Flight 19. Oh, yes. I read Larry Cush's book, The Disappearance of Flight 19. It's a very clinical look at what he thought happened to it. And that has, of course, tainted my point of view on it because everything he said made rational sense to me. Now, sometimes you read these books by people who are skeptical about a particular famous mystery or something, and it's clear that they have this need. They can't help but try to really break down that there's no way anything irrational happened. And you can smell that all through the book when you're reading it. And so they have this confirmation bias that makes you take everything with a grain of salt because they're leaning so hard against a supernatural idea that they're really pushing that into their writing. But in other cases, I feel like his approach made sense to me, but I still don't know where these planes are. And I know that Forrest had said that you had talked a little bit about it. Yes, it was on Coast to Coast. Yeah, Yeah. so tell us, tell our listeners about your experience with Flight 19. Right before, I guess it was about 11 o'clock this morning, I thought, you know, I teach a course that is called Beyond Advanced CRV for Professional Viewers. And it's a course that I'm very selective about who I teach it to. And it's really for only the best and the brightest and the most dedicated of the students that I have. And so I had three students in this one course. And one of the students is really like the best viewer, the most dependable as far as consistent accuracy. I decided to task him with Flight 19. And of course, he was blind to the whole thing. He didn't know what he was being tasked with. All he was told is the target is an event. Describe the target. That's what he was told. And so the idea with this particular course is that the viewer will go through the regular written protocols of the CRV process for a number of days, working on it periodically throughout several sessions. And we believe that the working on a session or on a particular target repeatedly kind of where's a path to the target, like a memory path to the target. You know how if you're going through uncharted forest, for example, and you have skiv, you know, or a hatchet or something, you're going to be cutting down an area to create a trail somewhere. Sure, sure. And then once you have that trail established, the more people that go on that trail, the better the trail is going to get, the smoother, the easier it's going to be for people who follow. And so it's kind of the same thing in remote viewing the more often you view a target, the easier it becomes to view that target. And not only does it become easier for you to view that target, but it becomes easier for other people to view the target too. Almost like you've created a path for others as well, because we're all connected in some sort of cosmic consciousness way. Wow. Okay. Can I ask a quick question? At the outset, the only information that he got was that it was an event. He didn't get a location, a time period, nothing? Nothing. No, that was all the information. There's millions of events throughout the course of human history. How does he get to the one? That exactly. It could be any event in all of space or time. And then you also have to think about what is an event? You know, is an event when a, an ant lays an egg? Is that an event? You know, then you get into the whole question of, okay, what could that encompass? And it could encompass such a huge, vast amount of things. And a lot of the targets we do, we don't have any information. We don't even get that. We just get a number. And so, interestingly, we always assign what we call a coordinate to a target. And in the beginning, the military guys had to have actual longitude and latitude. But then skeptics would say, oh, well, they got it right because they knew what was at that longitude and latitude. And so they just started using random numbers. They also found they had to use random numbers in the case where the longitude and latitude were unknown, such as the Iran hostage crisis. And so uh, they started using these numbers as databasing fields. 
so that they could keep records. Okay. So the numbers were significant to the database guy, but they weren't significant to anyone else. Right. And so um, we kind of now look at the numbers almost like there's some sort of an address in time space. If they are an address in time space, the coordinate number, then feasibly this guy, when just told the targets an event, described the target, that address was attached to flight 19. That way the viewer was able to just hone right in on what my intent was as the tasker. Um, the person giving the request is the tasker. And in this case, I assigned flight 19 to this viewer and I was the tasker. But did you give him an address? Like, did you give him a series of numbers or anything like that? Yes. yes okay. Yes. Okay. He was so, given. He was given a series of numbers. That's what we always do. We use a set of twelve numbers that are written six numbers, and then right underneath those six numbers. Okay. And those numbers have significance just for databasing purposes. So there's a system, but he's blind to that system. He's blind to the system. He's blind to yeah. He's blind to to the whole thing. Right. Okay. So how do you, and are you blind to the system as well? You have to ask somebody else, go and get the address for this and get it to me so I can task him with that. No, no, no. Okay. I and actually, you know, I can even tell you what I did. I just took the date backwards Okay. because the military always use, they always use the first six numbers, at least in I, what I've learned over time from knowing all these different guys who were part of the military unit is they did it in various ways throughout the course of the 20 years. I did not use the date of what happened with Flight 19. I used the date that it was the day that I assigned it to him. Oh, okay. I got you. Got yeah. It. So the date had nothing to do with Flight 19. Okay. Not at all. That would totally be misleading. So the date was the date that I assigned the target. So I assigned him this target in 2015. So I assigned him this target and he worked on it for several days. And since this was a course, this was a class I was teaching, each day I would teach a new technique and then their job was to go off and use the technique that day and whatever they were viewing, you know, to get more information, et cetera. And these are very advanced viewers. So this is not a basic course by any means. These are advanced techniques they're being taught. And so then after he had already done quite a bit of paperwork on this target, this mystery target, then we actually do an, a form of extended remote viewing. And so in the military unit, when they would do extended remote viewing, the viewer would lie down on a couch or on a bed, and the monitor was actually a very skilled hypnotist who would take the viewer through 40 different levels of consciousness, interviewing them about the target the whole time. And so as they were interviewing them about the target going through these different levels of consciousness, then the viewer would be accessing the target in a variety of ways in a hypnagogic state. And so this is really great because now they've already really built a memory path to the target. They're already hot on the trail and now they're able to view it while they're kind of in under hypnosis okay. with this being recorded. And so my husband and I are both certified hypnotists. We've been practicing hypnosis since 2004. We attended a school near San Antonio and, um, We've had a practice in Amarillo, Texas since 2004. We really love this part of it because we're able to do it like they did it back in the military. Sure. And so in this particular case with this viewer, I was the monitor for him. And I interviewed him for about 30 minutes at the target, so to speak, you know, while he's accessing the target. And so in preparation to meet with you today, at about 11 o'clock, I went to that recording and I was playing the recording back and I record things. Uh, I usually use go to meeting a lot of times when I do these things and I rarely have any ever problems with the recording and listen, I could not understand the recording. 
I could understand my part clear as a bell, but on his part, it sounded like when you are trying to find a radio station and you're kind of in between stations and it sounds like there's a million people yes. talking. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's what it sounded like. It's like this kind of static that's voices and it's blotting out his part of it. So I sent him an email and I asked him if, because he also recorded it separately so that we would have a backup. Yes. So I asked him if he would transcribe his part of it because I couldn't understand it. And I was hoping his recording is clearer, but I also was letting my husband listen to it. And the sounds are so weird, Scott. They're just really strange sounds that are blotting out his voice. And some of them are like really strangely electronic or you know, like, you know, and it's just strange because it was just he and I on go to meeting. It wasn't anything that would have caused that. So I'm not sure what happened anyway. So I'm going to have to rely on my memory because I have a pretty clear memory of what happened that day. It was so mind blowing for me that, you know, it's kind of seared into my neurons. (laughs) Yeah. And again, this is your star guy, right? This is your number one. This is my star guy. Exactly. This is my my top viewer. And so it was so fascinating for me because as he was explaining what he was perceiving, he was perceiving a kind of void with all these vessels in it. He said there are ships and flying vehicles of every shape and size from all different parts of history and some that look very futuristic and they're all together in this one place. And I thought now, why would that be at this target? He still has no idea what he's doing. And suddenly he's describing old aircraft and old ships and also present day aircraft, present day ships and futuristic looking aircraft Okay. in one location, kind of floating around in a big void. And so I was very intrigued by that because I wondered how would that occur in our current understanding of physics? Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You had asked me earlier about my belief system and and it went off into talking about Mel Riley, but my personal belief system went from fundamentalist Christianity into really having, I sort of like it blew my God box Uh way open. Okay. Prior to getting into remote viewing, if people talked to me about aliens, it was sort of like my ears just shut down. I just, it wasn't part of my paradigm. I couldn't even think about it. You know, so, um, now I've had sessions in which I have remote viewed and interacted with aliens, so to speak, I guess you could say. And when you are faced with something that it doesn't even fit into your belief system, you go mad or your belief system has to change. Your paradigm has to shift. Sure. And so mine has become greatly amplified, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I do have a much better understanding of how things work. And it also helps me really understand events that occurred throughout my life that used to be very frightening for me and that now I actually welcome and find quite enjoyable. With regard to what he was seeing with this void, I mean, could that just be a representation of the ocean floor in the Bermuda Triangle Could it, or at the in the ocean at large? Or? It definitely could be. That's the thing about remote viewing is we can listen to what is being said by the viewer. We can read what the viewer's written. It's open to interpretation. Yeah. In the past, I've actually refused to work with certain project managers that I felt had a tendency to color viewer results with their own interpretation of things or with their own belief systems about things. Sure. Um, You know, because I didn't want my work associated with something too out there or too tainted by opinion. Yeah. Um, I like my work to be pure and then people can look at it and interpret it in their own way. 
For example, let's say that I'm trying to help some investigator in a foreign country who has had a team of people who've been ambushed, let's say, and I've never been to that foreign country. So if I make assumptions that I'm looking at a tree or I make assumptions that I'm looking at a culvert or a bridge or whatever, and I use those nouns, I could completely mislead this person. But if instead I stick to describing what I'm seeing instead of identifying what I'm seeing, then a lot of times the descriptions cause the person who's very familiar with the area to go, oh my gosh, I totally know where this is right? just by my description. But if I had colored it with nouns, a lot of times it leads people off in a wild goose chase when nouns are used. So I always encourage my students to leave the nouns out of their report because it will mislead people. So does that mean you, in turn, you focus more on adjectives? It, like descriptions? Exactly. Or, yeah. Yes, descriptive words. We, we focus on descriptive words. Now, they're not all adjectives. Some are prepositions like on top of, beside, yeah. next to, colors, textures, temperatures, smells, sounds, tastes, and then dimensional things like shapes, sizes, patterns, positions. Think about uh, ambiances. You know, how often do we forget about the sense of ambiance? Like something is hallowed or sacred or scary or spooky or... Sure. Then we also have to describe using words that are conceptual or non-tangible words like political, touristy, fun, things that are you, that you can't hold grasp but are really key to understanding something no, often it's about an event. Or, super fascinating what you're saying because that word means something different to the person that you're giving the information to. It's like you're finding common ground in, in the mind in terms of what you're describing. And what's really interesting too, that a side note that's really interesting is if let's say that you are devoutly Catholic and I am horrified by Catholicism, or I, and I associate Catholicism with priests raping boys, let's say, right. and you associate Catholicism with your devotion to God, yeah. and we're both remote viewers, and we're both given the same target of a Catholic mass, how am I going to describe it versus how are you going to describe it, based on our perception of what that means to us personally? You have to be more neutral. Especially when we're both blind to the target. So you're describing something as sacred and beautiful and holy, and there's this leader that's amazing and wonderful, and you're describing this, and I'm describing this horrible ceremony that looks really almost satanic to me and has this leader that's really evil, and you know what I mean? Sure, sure. So you try to remove the opinionated part out of it. All this sort of thing that I'm talking to you about right now really comes through in training, and that way it helps the viewer learn about him or herself and their own prejudices, their own biases, and uh, those kinds of things. If you can learn all that in the training, then by the time you become professional, you're aware of your own biases and things, and you start realizing, oh, you know, I'm I'm feeling this way about this, and this is my reaction to it. Right. But it's often the the details, like the colors, textures, temperatures, smells, sounds, tastes, and shapes, and sizes, and patterns, that will give the information that is being most sought after. Do you have any further information on Flight 19 beyond the description of all this stuff being together in this void? Well, that was the part that stood out to me the most. Uh Um, That's the thing. I was really desperately trying to listen to this so I could remember everything that came out of it. But essentially, it seemed that what we all felt afterwards in talking about what he and I felt was that it's almost as though Flight 19 got into some kind of a dimensional void or some sort of a dimensional altercation. Um, We don't really understand physics. I don't believe that physicists even truly have an understanding of what this world contains. 
And, you know, how many dimensions are we talking about? If you read the holographic universe or some of the books by some of today's leading physicists, uh, the Japanese man, whose name I can't think of Michio right Kaku. now. Who, yes. And his books, you know, with the layers and the, the things where he believes he's found proof of seven dimensions, I believe he said. Yes. So to me, it makes total sense, especially with all the other projects I've worked on and some of the personal experiences that I've had, that there can be alternate dimensions. What we consider to be reality, I have a feeling, is really not as tangible and as real as we think it is. Okay. You know, the table that I'm sitting in front of, I can hammer it, but it's really not solid. It's really a mass of swarming molecules. As Einstein says, there truly is no mass that is solid, no matter. So since matter is not solid, then what is reality truly? I mean, you know, what do we really know of reality and can reality shift? And are there multiple dimensions existing in the same space and time? Is there any sense of, if that's what happened to the flight for its ultimate disappearance, is there any sense of what would have happened to the pilots and the crew members on the planes? That's the interesting thing. I don't really know. And I'm not sure if we have any kind of tangible outcome on what happened to them. Do we have tangible proof or outcome of what happened to any of us once we leave this particular plane right through what we call death do we really know um do they die in the word you know using the word die did they die or did they move into another dimension and if so are they trapped in that dimension or can they go on to what other other locations or fates or dimensions await them i don't you know so i don't know it's still a huge enigma yeah it did seem that the leader of the unit, Lieutenant Taylor, Charles Taylor, he was disoriented for sure in the beginning and having problems with figuring out where he was. And something that was interesting about that is that it falls in line with another story we did just the week prior, which was a story of a pilot named Bruce Gernon who encountered something in 1970 in his small private plane. He called it electronic fog, uh -huh. where his flight from the Bahamas, he had two passengers on board, his father and um, a business associate. They were flying back from the Bahamas to Florida. And they got caught in something very strange that moved them forward in time and space. I mean, it brought them back to Florida about 30 minutes early, and they traveled 100 miles in a matter of two or three minutes. It was an impossible feat for that airplane. And he's mm -hmm. been trying to figure it out ever since. But there's something about the onset of that incident, which he survived, has a lot of common ground with the onset of the Flight 19 incident from what we know from the radio transmissions. And how they got disoriented in the first place might be connected to it, which is, you know, plays into everything that you were saying a few minutes ago. I mean, there's some people that just say they got lost and ran out of gas and flew out into the middle of the ocean and we didn't know where to look for them. I lived in the Bermuda Triangle for a couple of years. I lived in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, and I frequently took flights all over that area. I speak Spanish fluently, and I spoke to many of the pilots who were flying and asked them, what do you find when you're flying? And they said, we can't trust our instruments ever because they often don't work. And they sometimes spin around or we can't get our bearings. And they talked about how that was really common. Huh. And these were guys who were flying every day in the Bermuda Triangle. So something is happening in that area. I don't know what it is, but it seems that something is definitely going on that affects instrumentation and affects the ability of the human brain to understand where it is in time space 
So just really fascinating. And uh, years ago, I read a book by a man whose last name was Brennan, B-R-E-N-N-E-N, called Time Travel. And it talked about all the historic documented incidents that indicate that time travel really is possible and has occurred. A teacher, for example, is, walks into her classroom and suddenly she's sees a woman sitting in like 18th century clothing or 19th century clothing sitting at a desk and out the window instead of the parking lot, there's, you know, a grassy lawn and, you know, yeah. everything is shifted. And then she steps back out and steps back in and everything's normal again. And that actually happened to my mother-in-law where she stepped into a bedroom of, of an old uh, homestead in Hawaii. And there was an old man in, in a bed that she didn't recognize with an old woman sitting next to him in a chair. Uh-huh. And she was, you know, hysterical and she ran out and grabbed her mother and they went back in and everything was normal in the room. And then her mother got out photo albums and she recognized the old man and the old woman as being her great grandparents or something. And so, you know, these kinds of things, now they could be hallucinatory, but then doesn't make so sense. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. It's a really interesting book with all kinds of interesting little stories in it, but that always fascinated me with the idea of time travel. So in remote viewing in, in my years, my 20 plus years now of working in the field of remote viewing, I found that time is the biggest enigma when it comes to remote viewing, because you can literally get information from a totally different time and place. And you can often experience time slippages once you start working in this field full time. And I've had some very interesting slippages in time in my own life that have been fascinating. And it, I promise it's not drug related. <laughs> <laughs> like I was out on a walk. I came up to the top of a hill and this is a walk that I go on every day. I was coming to the top of this hill and suddenly I felt really strange physically kind of dizzy. And and suddenly it felt as though something had shifted. And I looked around to kind of find what's different. And this house that I passed by every day was not there. This two story structure was not there. And in its place was this old shabby green structure that was one story. And I was standing there staring at it thinking what happened to the big two-story cream-colored structure that I remember. And right then my son came running up and he said, hey, mom, I decided to go for a walk with you. And I was so relieved to see him because it was like, okay, reality, he's here, everything's fine. So I said, what happened to the structure on this corner? And he said, you know, I described it to him. He said, mom, that little green house has always been there. There's never been a two-story thing there. And so I was kind of freaked out, but I didn't say anything. And we continued our walk and I continued looking at every corner thinking, could I have mistaken that corner for a different corner? Sure. Two years later, they built the structure that I remembered. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it was not deja vu. Right, it was right. the memory. And I felt like I had walked by that corner for years and looked at that structure every time. And in reality, it hadn't been built yet. So what I was remembering was the future. And so in physics, they say that if you can remember the past, you should be able to remember the future because it goes both ways. And I've had similar incidents now on a number of occasions where I've remembered the future instead of remembering the past. And it's not deja vu. I've had deja vu. It's very different from deja vu. It's an actual solid memory. Yeah. And many of it has happened with my husband where we were on a trip and and we're looking for a hotel and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember when we we're on the street before and, you know, a couple of days ago, and I was pointing out these different businesses to you. And then we found that one pink hotel a few blocks down, it's like $65 a night. And he's just looking at me with this strange expression saying, we weren't here a couple of days ago. We were camping and you know, yeah. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And then we drive a few blocks and there's the pink hotel and it's $65 a night. And, 
everything was exactly as I had quote unquote remembered it. It's interesting you should say this because Forrest had wanted me to ask you about remote viewing in general. Are are your targets in terms of time? Are they they're probably usually in the past. Are they ever in the future? Oh yes. Okay. We have done as an experiment with students that are advanced in the advanced levels and also as paid projects. I have viewed future technology because that's a great thing to be able to do. You know, can yeah. you view a technology that hasn't been invented yet. That's really fascinating to me, too, the corporate clients that you guys have. I mean, and coming back to belief systems, it's what kind of belief system does a corporation have to have to come and say, hey, you know, we're accepting remote viewing as a, as a real thing, and we want to know what's our competition doing, or what are we going to come up with in the future? Is it that sort of thing, or is it more solving, like you said? You know, I actually have a section for services on my website that actually delineate what kinds of jobs we take on and how much the fee schedule is and that sort of thing. And one of the things we very clearly state is that we do not participate in corporate espionage. Oh, right. Because to us, that's corporate espionage. If you're going to tell a company, you know, if I'm going to tell Toshiba what Sony's doing, that's not a good idea. You know, that's something I don't want to get mixed up in. In fact, I had a woman contact me. She'd gone to my fee schedule. She knew how much I charged for things. And so she contacted me with an email and said, I, I have a project I'd like you to do. And I'm, you know, I'm going to pay you your fee of $500 for this particular type of project. Um, and I wrote her back and said, you want me to spy on your husband to see if he's cheating on you. And I don't do that sort of project. And she just wrote back and said, you're right. Thank you very much. And that was that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I turned down five hundred dollars, yeah, because I, that was not a, that's not a project I wanted to do, you know, or wanted to be involved in. Yeah. But um, if you ever read the book Timeline by Michael Crichton, I did read it. It's been uh, many years, uh, okay, but I well, absolutely it, read it. You know, it, yeah. it's so funny because I had a friend who lent me the book and said, "You've got to read this book." I'm one of these people who starts on the first page. I read the foreword and all the yeah. thank yous and everything, and so I start reading the foreword, and I got about halfway through it, and I looked at my husband and said this guy is a remote viewer. Michael Crichton is a remote viewer. I just knew it from the way he had written it. And he was talking about corporations like Toshiba and Sony yeah. getting into quantum technology. And I, there was a, something about the way he wrote it. I just knew. And I found out later that he had worked with an acquaintance of mine, Stephen Schwartz, on a number of remote viewing projects that Michael Crichton had been uh-huh. a viewer on that those projects. Fact. Quantum foam makes me roam. That's from that book. I remember that. <laughs> that was the quote. <laughs> Quantum foam makes me really, yeah, that's an amazing book. Yeah, well, if you read the forward to it, that is not part of the story. Yeah. Where he's talking about quantum technology, you can tell that he's a remote viewer. And he talks about the future of companies that are developing things that can be controlled with the mind. I know that there are corporations that the idea of having their own remote viewing team, where you have a viewer and a monitor and you have a report writer and an analyst and just a full team. Yeah, It's really exciting because the potential of it is exciting to me. After all these years, I still get very excited talking about remote viewing because think of what we could do if we had the ability to create the right kind of company. We could solve a lot of the planet's problems. All right, the first embarrassing thing about that interview. <laughs> Not the only, but the first. Well, yeah, Sarah had a lot, our editor had a ton of work to do because I said, wow, about 7,000 times, <laughs> like some kind of idiot. I just kept going, wow. No, I know. I, she yeah. cut a bunch of them out, but then yeah. I I feel like I cut another 10 or 15 even after she made no, her I, pass. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation, and I knew you two would hit it off. Yeah, right. I really did enjoy talking to her. In fact, we spoke for another hour and a half off the record. 
And the stuff she told me that she didn't necessarily want to do on the show was even more fascinating, personal experiences. And I'm just hoping that we can get her back because I really do want to do a series on this. I'm, I'm yeah, really fascinated well, with it. Yeah, um, well, that's one of the big matzo balls in the lineup there for us to do later on down the line. But Yeah, talking you've been about talking it, about it as long as I've known for you. Long, yeah, yeah, because I've heard about it for years now, but didn't know a whole lot about it. But one thing I wanted to do is when we go to do the thing, I think we should try a little bit of it. I do want to try it, yeah, actually. And do the results on the show. Yeah. I would just love to hear Scott mumbling in a hypnotic state too. That'd be funny. Yeah. I'm looking forward to actually taking some of her classes and just trying to figure out the schedule and when I can do it. But um, I think that what fascinates me the most about it is when she's talking about like, what is an event? When you're talking about right. targets, what is an event? When she says, is an ant laying an egg an event? And yeah. for me, considering the free range that they apparently have in terms of what a target can be, right? because it's my understanding they can even examine the intricate workings of a small, very small mechanical device uh, well, to determine what's wrong with yeah, it. Yeah, well, speaking of that, uh, that I think is a large part of the military's interest in it because sure. it's like what Russell Targ was describing in the quote. How does this particle beam weapon work, really? Where do you guys keep it? Yeah. You know. What does it look like yeah. on the inside? What are the components? That sort of thing. Right. So you get some generalizations and you get some vague descriptions, and that's what a lot of people will... Well, it doesn't tell exactly the address. Well, you can get a close descriptor uh, well, of things. Again, a lot of it's the interpretation. If you can put the clues together, so to speak, it's like the CIA. It's like they kind of knew what that was. Oh, big sphere, uh, Russians building a small building with a crane on top. Yeah. They already have satellite information. So when you give them clues, it fleshes it out. So yeah. that's kind of the idea. So yeah, a lot of people are going to say it doesn't do enough for them. Well, you didn't tell me exactly where I lost my wallet and how to get it back. It's like, well, no, but you know, you'll get some idea of maybe where it's at now. Right, and I like that when you describe it, you don't describe that it's like, oh, well, it's at the fourth building on the left on this. It's more like, okay, a humid area. Right, there's different I'm seeing grass. Right. There's, and that's where you, you use those words yeah. to help describe what it's like because they are very specific about what they're describing as opposed to the noun, is a, uh, it's in a building. Well, a building means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Small right, building, a big right. building, whatever. So it's interesting how she talks about that. This is one of the things I first saw on it. CBS, I think, did a profile on Joseph McMonagle, who Lori calls Joe. She's known him, I think, for many years now. Yeah. He's one of the uh, founders, one of the first guys to do it from the military aspect. And his approach is a little different because he's got a lot of natural talent. But he was being profiled on this CBS show, which I found, and we'll have a link to, at least the transcription part of it. Yeah. So they did a test, of course, and he was trying to describe a location. And I'm not sure that they even mentioned that to him, but it was just a place. So there's a picture in an envelope. He doesn't know where it is. And all of the descriptors he uses, it's like, I'm seeing many people coming and going. There's a platform, there's a ferry, there's arched kind of windows. These windows are open, maybe on this ferry. And he didn't exactly nail the place. He said, well, it was Niagara Falls. And you didn't get it. It's like, well, that's a lot of descriptors for what that is. Yeah. And of course, his thing was like, everybody who knows me knows I don't get waterfalls. I just, for some reason, I can't visualize waterfalls. And the other interesting aspect was, is he looking at the person who's supposed to be there as the target? Or are you seeing what this target person, what their point of view is, looking outward? Well, and that's what I was saying a minute ago about the ant, whether you know where the ant lays an egg. If you have the ability to go all the way down to this small view or this mi almost microscopic view, 
you know, the discipline to determine how far in you're zooming in or out. It's like an Ant-Man. I mean, also that movie. Yeah. We have to make <laughs> a million movie references <laughs> yeah. about where you can accidentally go too small. Yes, you know? right. But where do you stop? And yeah. when do you wind up in this void and, you know, come out of it in a vegetative state? But, well, uh, you the, know, yeah, right. Because you now you're subatomic and at what point do you not exist as a particle? But the other interesting aspect about this phenomenon is that it's not limited to space or time. And right. so it, Lori had mentioned this in that, because people will say, well, how can you go into the past or the future or different places in time and space? Because again, as we always say, time is a perspective and it is maybe a little bit like the Buddhist concept of everything is now. It's yeah. not as you experience it, time that is. So you have a band of connected everything, you know, surrounding us in our reality and you're able to just go to certain pinpoints. I still have not, even after doing this episode of the show, I still haven't fully wrapped my head around the address system and the targeting and which comes first. It's like a chicken and the egg thing. I right. can't figure out. I feel like you have these numbers and then it's like they go there and then they put an address on it. I don't know. We can get Lori to explain that better. She is unavailable this week. She's in the process of moving across the country. But it's interesting trying to figure out how that works. And that's something I want to know more about if we come back to this. I mean, this show is more focused on this particular Flight 19 session. Right, right. And I think when deciding how I personally feel about remote viewing, it's all about that, that personal point of view that you have. I was on board with everything she said, but when she mentioned that she had interacted with what she took to be an alien, you know, as I was on the phone with her, <laughs> yeah. I was so taken aback that in true investigative journalist style, right. I completely froze up and didn't ask a single question. <laughs> yes, that's what people were like, what are you going to ask do? her about that? Or yeah. are you kidding me? But my brain was saying, wait, wait a minute. And then I have to go through the whole alien thing and ain't nobody got time for that, if you know what I mean. I'm just like, <laughs> at least not in the middle of an interview because right. then there's all these questions. Do I believe in aliens? Do I believe we can communicate with them? Yes. I must. All I do is talk about them on Astonishing Legends. Should I laugh that <laughs> off? Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> it starts pulling the thread on that reality sweater. Of, yeah. Well, how does all of this work? What is our reality? And it's not all pseudoscience. Yeah, we are talking about theoretical physics here. Yeah. We talked about this, you know, ad nauseum and in the past, but it is the big question of, we know that some aspects of this work, but how does it work? Nobody knows that. And maybe it's unknowable. Well, and the other thing is I'm at a comfortable distance, like, for example, from my belief of aliens. Yeah, this where, is what, is, that, yeah what well, is your belief on aliens? Well, <laughs> well I don't really know. I like the idea of yeah. them, but I haven't seen one. And You're I a don't, tad agnostic when it comes to Yeah, I don't want to see one, but <laughs> I was thinking about this yesterday. I take Kempo with my son, yeah. and I'm going uh, three times a week. I personally take lessons twice a week, and he goes three times a week, but I'm there with him the whole time. So I'm sure. at the dojo a lot, yeah, but I'm yeah. like, and I just started out not very long ago. Yeah. I'm a yellow belt and I'm working towards <laughs> orange. A crew belt. Yeah. <laughs> and for, yeah. for orange belt, I have to learn 24 techniques. Right. And each technique is a different memorization of patterns and that sort of thing. And it, there's a reason I'm going on with this analogy. It's not just another excuse to talk about myself. <laughs> but the, the point is that just yesterday I was there and I realized that I was starting to actually learn these 24 techniques. Yeah, it was sinking in. And I got scared because it meant that I was closer to the test. And the tests are terrifying, <laughs> uh, right. right? So this is yes. my point. It's like, yeah. I liked it better when I hadn't really wrapped my head around them and the test was yes. this thing way over the horizon. Yes, dude, and ignorance is bliss. That's what the term means. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So when I think about the aliens and I was like, well, they're way over the horizon. Yeah. But then when I'm on the phone with somebody who's like, oh yeah, and I talk to aliens, I'm like, well, I... <laughs> 
I, <laughs> you can do that? Yeah. So yeah. I, I just, I, I you know, know what you mean. Yes, I, you I, know. I see what you mean. And it, I'm sure no. a lot of people like press stop on the podcast at that point, but that's what I was thinking about, <laughs> keeping your mind open. Right. Let's listen to this because I think you have to look at the bigger picture. You can't just look at what is supported empirically for the rest of your life. It's just a, there's right. so much more. There's yes, so much no, more. No, there is that, that we understand. And it's a comfortable human position. Yeah. Sometimes the scientific one is the comfortable position because it's conventional thinking. It's right. like the Fermi paradox we've talked about quite a bit before. Well, they can't be here because it would take millions of years in a rocket to get here. Well, what if you don't need that rocket? Yeah, if you're using fire to get around. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like, we're still using fire. Now we're SpaceX is trying to master landing a rocket like we did in the 50s right. in science fiction. Yeah. Which is very cool. Not knocking that at all. But my point is, if you can somehow make that folding of space mentally, psychically, yeah, where you can pinpoint someone else in other space-time realms, you don't need the darned Battlestar Galactica we, fleet of ships. Yeah, you know what else you don't know? Maybe the secret to interstellar space travel is not to take your body with you. Yeah, well, that, there you go. Leave it behind. It's yeah. a pain in the butt. Well, that, that's, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's all about how energy travels, quantum entanglement, those kind of things, similar things happening in two different places at once. Yeah. There's a lot of big questions. And yeah, so that is the problem that the scientific community has with this is like, well, you can't get it to a percentage where you can rely on it and you can't tell me how it works. And we're going to talk down about that yeah, in a minute. But, all right, so let's move on to the second interview segment that we have in the show. Lori had told me offline that she had wanted to protect her top viewer's identity, the one that she's referring to in the last interview. But she said she would reach out to him for more details about these sessions he did. And we got lucky in that he agreed to come on the show a few days later himself, which is pretty exciting. His name is Jed Bendix, and he's the actual viewer who did the session where the target was Flight 19. Jed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for letting me on the show. I do have my notes, my entire session for the controlled remote viewing part. The part that Lori and I did was the ERV, the extended remote viewing session, where she hypnotized me. Okay. So you have notes. What's different about the controlled session? Okay, controlled remote viewing and extended remote viewing are two different methodologies of remote viewing. Both were used by the military. At some point, they were blended together with some of the viewers who initially were taught ERV or extended remote viewing, which was the first generation in remote viewing. And later on, when the Army took over, they used ERV at first, and then eventually Ingo Swan developed what became known as controlled remote viewing. One is the controlled remote viewing is done with your eyes wide open. ERV is done sort of in a hypnagogic state or a hypnosis state. Okay. And you can do that on your own, too. You don't need to be hypnotized. Just relax yourself and close your eyes. ERV works better if you have a monitor. CRV, you can get by without a monitor, but yet again, there, having a monitor does work better. That's someone to guide you through the session. Each time, though, the monitor does not know what the target is. That's in a true remote viewing session. What I did for Lori was both. So she initially had me do a CRV session, and then afterwards she hypnotized me, put me into a state (laughs) and uh, did an ERV session with uh, very similar results. Some little differences on the ERV. I I had more visual contact and more 
of an experience of being at the site with the ERB, whereas the CRB is more of a distance feeling. Starting out with the Flight 19, with this particular experience, what did you know about what she was asking you to look into before the session started? She had indicated that a lot of times, it, or maybe all the time, that you go into the session kind of blind. Is that the case, or how does that work? Yes. I had no idea what the target was okay. until we had finished both the CRV and ERV session and had written up our summary, my summary, I should say. There were two other people in the class. They had totally different targets. So I went into this and started my session out and uh, came up with a very expansive region and was feeling of falling, like coming down off of waterfalls into a body of water. Okay. And I had, okay, what's this? And then sort of an explosive type event occurred. That was the initial part of the beginning of the session. Your notes are from the CR, the controlled session, right? That you're referring to now? Yes. Okay. I did have a written up a page, a summary on the ERV, but that won't be till the end. Okay. So I'm going over basically what feels like waterfalls into water and hitting this thing very hard, like hitting cement. Okay. Below me, I see what there's, as this is taking place, as I'm descending, there's this describing this area as a checkered pattern. It's a white, it's blue, it's a vast. Okay. Then I, I moved on to a human figure that I picked up, and uh, there was a gurgling sound and coughing sound, fast and rapid motion. So I'm picking up this sort of what appears to be a rubbery man-made object, too, at the same time, or uh, something that floats. All right. Okay. Sort of in that direction. At the same time, I'm having what are called stray cats or analytical overlays at the same time. And one of them is going overboard, a boat, a water park, and overseas right at this point. So I'm hitting this contact with this thing at this point as being an event in the water. Right. So it's okay. a combination of a, of a lot of different feelings and ideas that, yeah. all, that you have to look at the sum of to get a sense of what's going on. Yep. And I have this person who's trying to grip this object, and I draw this guy who looks like uh, afterwards I'm driving him a hand and an arm grasping what would be like a joystick for a airplane. Okay. Then I eventually start getting AOLs of an airplane crash by the time I get page 18 in the water. Uh -huh. And I had no idea what I was doing. Aircraft in the water. Let's see, it is historical in nature. Page 25. Okay. I'm going to move back a page here. I'm starting to describe some land, that there's land that they must have flown over at some point. At this point, they're feeling lonely and isolated and confused, and there's a lot of disorientation. And I describe the land as there's a slight rise, nothing very high, low in relationship to the water, and very far from my home place to where I live, <laughs> in the center of uh, North America. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and they're having trouble. There's a concern amongst them. They're disassociated. And I try to figure out uh, what's the trouble. I come up that it's mechanical. It's an engineering or feel like it's a broken problem. It's hard to repair. Okay. So I'm going, okay, I keep focusing on this. They start coming up with airplane, again, I'm having these AOLs, associations. Now, you have to remember, you got to be very careful with stray cats or AOLs. It's sort of like if you have a dream at night 
and you're having a dream of a friend and they're in an old building, a high school building, and it's a high school classmate. And you're going, why am I dreaming of this friend from high school? Well, there's this interaction, the action between him and he's, let's say, climbing a ladder. Well, you associate that in your real life that you're at work and you're trying to just climb the ladder of success sure. at your own business. Maybe you just applied for a job and you're seeing yourself as this one friend who is very um, good at school and that was always getting good grades. So it's an association. So you have to keep stray cats and AOLs in mind like that. You never take them literally. They're associating something like an object in a dream state. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So okay. they can lead you astray in terms of what you're trying to discern. Yeah. Okay. In this session, I'm hitting airplane and water, right. which I could have been hitting something else to make it similar as this is what it was giving me. <laughs> so I start coming up with... Uh, they're having problems with this airplane, as I describe it. And it starts to create a vibrational motion and shaking motion. And there's less and less power. The craft has left lift associated. And there's lots of motion. And it starts to crash, starts to descend in altitude. And at the same time, this is occurring. There's a concern of a white object <laughs> Uh, appears um, nearby the aircraft wing. Now, of course, with this flight, there's more than one aircraft. But there, all of a sudden, there's this other aircraft that appears out of nowhere. Or I, I should not say aircraft, other object appears over the course of their wing to the side of this aircraft. And it glows, and there's a softness with it. And it runs adjacent to it, and it's swift in motion. And there's a sense of confusion to them is about this other aircraft or this other object. Sorry, I don't mean to use the word aircraft. That does not appear in my session, but I keep using it. Okay. It has a different appearance and shape than the aircraft that they are in. It has a more of a V appearance. Okay. And it's larger. And the purpose of this aircraft seems to be intelligence in gathering information. So when I move to that V-shaped object. Now, I move on. I'm going to go through this. How long ago was this session? It was done in February of 2015. Okay, so not so long ago. Now, I'm going to move to a part that I think you will find interesting. There's this orchestrated and controlled object. And so now I move to this object and I start getting this object that's off to the side. And I start getting AOLs of intelligent being, angelic light in appearance. And those are, remember, AOLs and that, straight cats. Analytical overlays. Overlay, right? yeah. yeah. So there's this sense to me deep down somewhere this appears to be angelic like in appearance for an intelligent being and its purpose is intelligence it's restrictive and knowledge it's moving very fast and it seems to follow along so as these people are now in their descent mode basically this other thing appears alongside them so i can't say for sure i don't want to lead your listeners astray it's extremely smart, well-rounded, and well-versed. And uh, the people at the site 
people in the aircraft. They do not understand. They're confused and they're asking many questions. What is going on basically at this point, which could either be a response to them losing power and crashing, or they're going, what on earth is this thing that just appeared? Right. Okay. And all of a sudden there's a thunderous noise at this point. What appears to be sunlight appears to them. So, you know, you can read into this so many different ways. And it's hard to just say, let the information be as it is. I hate to lead your listeners, but, you know, I could give a couple examples of which way this could go. Either they're having a near-death experience Mm -hmm. or there's something extraterrestrial is happening or another aircraft happened to appear out of somewhere right before they crashed. And that happens later on. Another aircraft was sent out to them and did crash and never returned. Yes. So it's hard to know if that's what's taking place. So you have three different options I'm throwing out there. Sure. Just to keep your listeners from running in one direction or the other. Of course, as I'm saying, I did not know what was going on while I was doing this. Would these things be related, like say if it was in reference to the other aircraft that was lost, which is thought to have possibly exploded, would you say Mm -hmm. that even though that aircraft was theoretically nowhere near Flight 19, like they wouldn't have necessarily seen each other, but they're connected as an event. So Mm -hmm. when you're doing remote viewing, and we were looking a few minutes ago at the different possible interpretations of the information that you're gathering, would it just be enough of a connection that that might be what it is just because they were a search plane related to the missing planes, even though they might not have been in visual proximity of each other? That is a very good point, and that would be yes. Okay. Two events, even though they're separated because in time and space by a very short period. I mean, space, they might be separated by 100 miles or more, but time-wise, because they're considered to be part of the same event and associated with that, yes. Right. So there's like a collective shell or a set that all of this information might be contained in, the common thread being there was one singular impetus for this particular series of events. And that would actually make more sense than the other ones that I gave you. Right. So, yeah. You try to be as open-minded as you can be, but also impartial and try not to steer it in any particular yes. direction. You had the father remote viewing Ingo Swan. He died. But most people forget that there were two other people involved in helping create control remote viewing. That was helped put off and Russell Targ. And I did an interview with both of them, and they were scientists, physicists. And Russell Targ, who's a PhD in physics, he's a very skeptical person. You have to really convince him of something that works. He doesn't believe in the boogeyman, Bigfoot, or anything like that. Or uh, you, you have to give him facts. Sure. But he said, for whatever reason, remote viewing works. And he was working with the CIA on it when it started. He says it works. The only thing is that he said was we could not find out the mechanism for why it works. And that means there's something more than the human mind, which the human mind, if you think of it, is you have the brain and then a human body. The human body has a lot of information that stores and gives to the mind that percolates up. We just don't know everything that's going on subconsciously with the human mind yet. But for some reason, when we can look at the data and we can see these strong correlations with people who can remote access things at a distance without use of their senses, sight, sound, hearing, touch. 
And if you come up with this information, it leads to something like, what is going on here with the human body that we don't know about? Yeah. And that's where I'm at. Yeah. I want to be respectful about that, yeah. but I want to make it sure that it's understood in a realistic sense because there's plenty of skeptics and debunkers out there. But when they went through and they had the skeptics come in and set the parameters up for this, and each time they tightened the parameters down, finally they just started asking them, well, why don't you do it? And then these skeptics would say, well, you know, that's, and they'd sit down and hit the target, and they're going, oh, this does exist. Right. Then the skeptics that did it became the best, the ones who would go out and meet the drum bush, hey, we got to explore this. Was there any other significant information downstream of the events you just described with regard to Flight 19 that you'd like to share? Or? Oh, I did some drawings of the landing drover and had some illustrations, uh, like the plane went on to the rattling sounds and the wind sounds and the vibrations and it drew a air flowing over would appear to be a wing and was losing lift off of that. Okay. And I drew pictures of what I saw during the ERV session and that of the aircraft descending and crashing and of the land formation they flew over. And I had two actual pictures of the land. And they're all along the ocean or the ocean was surrounding it or they were on the, you could see the beach maybe a few trees, a few buildings, and uh, what appeared to be, I described a long V-shaped object, but I'm beginning to wonder if that was an airfield or roadway on the one, oh, here it is, Island. This was February 10th, 2015. This might have been the ERV session. I drew this from the ERV session. Is it possible to email this to you? I would. You could put it on your website. Yeah, we would love to have any drawings that you're willing to share. We would absolutely love to have that. Okay. Yeah, I can do that for your listeners. Sure. That would be great. They would love that. Did you get a, any sense of the end result for the flight beyond crashing or near-death experience or possible death experience? or would... After the crash and they're in the water, I can't say this for everyone in the flight, the ones that I appeared to be attached to, there was a sort of a death struggle, you might call it as, being injured somewhat, not completely maybe dying at first, some of them. But there appears to be, what in the ERV session, something associated with, and there's a point where I see the moon, and all of a sudden I'm like zipping past the moon, and I'm zipping out past Mars. It really, I mean, like warp speed, faster, like speed of light. Sure. And it's just like sort of, instantaneous and so i'm not sure what is taking place if there's trying to be an orientation in the sky or if there's been a release of a and here i would be leading your viewers again yeah no i, the soul, I think i know where you're going yeah soul releasing, <laughs> yeah sure. soul releasing itself or whatever so there's something to be astrologically and there's obviously more than one explanation and that could be easily Someone is trying to figure out where they're at, time of the night or whatever, and they're looking up, and they can see stars. Yeah. Or, like I said, the other way. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, it's interesting to me. I keep coming back to, like, how you don't know what the target is. I mean, Lori sort of explained it, and I'll be sharing that in the show, what she said about it, about this the system of numbers, that you're blind to what the numbers mean, right, when it starts out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's correct. What is the only thing connecting you to the person who's guiding you to the actual event? Is it the guide's 
a desire to have that event explored or where does that connection come in? I wonder, I, that's the part I don't understand. Well, I've done hundreds of sessions without knowing what the target is and had no monitor, no one there to guide me other than just going through my self and come up always amazed at what I get. And it's like 95% of the time you hit the target and there's always anomalies within the session work, sort of like in a dream state. When you're having a dream at night, there's anomalies. And the reason is it seems to be telling the person you're not awake. When you're awake, you know not to jump off the cliff. Right. In the dream state, there's a person walking out across the cliff and not falling. So there's this anomaly that occurs. Same way in remote viewing. So it's like to get a pure 100% accuracy, there's too much bubbling up through the subconscious. The mind is filtering out. So you're interpreting it through your own internal language and your own understanding of the universe or the world around you. So you have this anomalies that appear. What is your final analysis of, you know, your personal analysis of what you think might have happened to Flight 19? They got lost and they crashed into the ocean. And I, I don't want to speculate. You know, I'm going to leave it to your viewers as to what appeared to them. Or right. if that other object, or other was the other flight, that, as you said. Sure. Because I don't know myself. Right. And I would only be speculating. I know what information is out there. And too bad at that point we had not done the dowsing part. I would have loved to have doused and seen if there were the, any possibility where the wreckage would be. That was not as apt, as apt at dowsing as I am now at that point. How does that work? you have to go to the area or you just need a map or something? or Just, just a map. Oh, wow, okay. Paul Smith has, a, I initially learned from his, it's a really good DVD he has out on how to learn how to douse. And then Lori has a class on her professional in it and her advanced part that gets into dowsing. When dowsing, you have to keep up. It's a practice. That's an art, just like CRV, ERV. Sure, sure. Are there other cases that you've worked on that you are able to discuss? Anything else that you've worked on recently that is, you're allowed to talk about that you'd be interested in sharing just briefly? Yes, there are some, but I, not without Lori telling me uh, it's okay. I mean, we've worked on projects that one of them <laughs> I was really surprised on, but it uh, came out really well. Uh -huh. But me personally, the ones that I've worked for myself, I'm always amazed at what comes up in a session. And there's different types of sessions. You can be working just on a human being or life events, future life events, past life events, or you can be working on uh, mechanical projects. Last question I want to ask you, do, do you feel like you have a special gift of some kind, or do you feel more like you've just learned a skill set that anyone could learn? A skill set that anybody can learn, even though most people will deny it, and especially if you've been brought up in a certain mindset to deny that. I was very lucky, even though I went to a very conservative Lutheran parochial school, I was very lucky in the fact that I had a very open-minded great aunt, and a brother that, that I and him, or the two of us, I should say, shared a very unusual event when I was age 13 that opened the door for me being open-minded the rest of my life. 
Well, Jed, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to talk to our listeners. We're hoping to do a maybe a future show more specifically devoted to remote viewing with Lori, and maybe you can come back on if you're interested. Oh, yes. Thanks. Okay, great. Thank you very much. And if you can get those drawings to us, we would love to have whatever you feel like scanning and emailing. Okay. Great. Thanks. You're welcome. Wow. Okay. So mm. that, Jed is a fascinating guy. And I got to tell you, having exchanged a bunch of emails with him and going back and forth for the past week or two, yeah, I've really enjoyed interacting with him. He's a very smart, interesting yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and he's a, a amateur radio yeah, he's operator. Yeah, an amateur radio operator. Exactly. Which means he just doesn't get paid for it, but he knows a lot about it and antennas. So he weighed in on our radio question here with Yes, he did. He yeah. sure did. And I guess for me, this is where you start talking about the actual results from the session, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I, I, now, we got to remember, I want everyone to remember, he goes into this session, the target is completely blind to him. It's a series of numbers that don't even make sense that are made up. That's what he's given. Yeah. And that's all he knows about what he's trying to see. And this is still the most confusing part about remote viewing to me. But he starts right out at the beginning talking about, and he's referring to his notes, which he has pages and pages of notes, which he said he had, but he was reluctant to send them to us because we might misinterpret them, which I yes, I understand right. and I respect that. Yeah. With remote viewing as a process, which, as Lori said, is intentionally complex to keep the conscious mind occupied right. and separate it from what the subconscious mind is doing. Yeah, there's different factors involved. And if you look at the whole thing and what the results are, yeah, it's not so fascinating if he was even told anything about it, like, it's a World War II event. Yeah. Then he's like, oh, okay, uh, planes. Not that he's trying to fool anybody. No. But your imagination then starts conjuring images of, like, planes and tanks and Which is explosions. what he said. That's right. He yeah, wanted exactly. to stay out of so, it. And even as yeah. he's describing it, he's trying really hard not to lead our own listeners as he's talking about it. He knows nothing about this event, as Scott just said. Yes. So for him to come up with these details, look, if he already knew about Flight 19 or knew that, oh, that's going to be our theme tonight, Yeah. of course you're going to come up with that kind of imagery. But the fact that he knows nothing about it, what makes that work? That's, that's what's so fascinating about and it. And that's really interesting. And he told me later he only had a vague sense of Flight 19 at all. Yeah. Going into this still not knowing that had anything to do with that, but just in general about it historically prior to the session. Right. And after we spoke, after this interview, he went back and dug into it a little bit yeah. more and then came back again, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And that must be freaky for him. Yeah, because then it's this... confirming things that he pulled out right. of the blue. He's had this cascade of imagery and sensations, and then now you have the context late after the session. So yeah, it's... I mean, look at that thing, the thing with the aircraft in the water, the fact that he described falling and an impact and land they must have flown over. And even when he described the land, it sounded a lot like the Abaco Islands yeah. or or the yeah. Keys, depending right. on what you might believe. The Keys or the Keys or the Shoals. Yeah. And, pick. and then the rubbery substance, which is, to me, that's a life raft. Yeah, it's a life raft. And he's seeing a hand on a joystick, the vibrations in the plane, there's a mechanical problem. And then with regard to what we said just before this segment about being able to describe what exactly is causing a problem. He's seeing this small device. He's actually describing it and describing what sounds like gasoline or yeah. fuel yeah. in this device. But on the other hand, there's things that are connected maybe to the other flights that are involved in the search, you know, that day, like the Martin Mariner. Yeah, and, and exactly. So that was an important point to make. He's not choosing what images are directly connected with this or how to receive them. So right. it could be one of the other planes that you're seeing. It's not Flight 19 going down in the water, but maybe it's the explosion 
of the PBM Mariner. Right. And a that's interesting. Event, life force energy being dealt with or involved, it makes an imprint. It kind of yes. leaves a, a skid mark, if you will, or burned in shadow of this event. So when he's looking at this kind of this whole event as, and again, like we said, like what constitutes an event? The ant egg analogy, what parts of these get scooped in with this entire event? Well, certainly the PBM Mariner, that is part of the search that is connected to this directly, but it's its own tragedy. Yeah. You know, as he went on and he also talked about the confusion, it really is interesting. Again, reminding you, he had no idea what he was looking for when he started doing this. And he got concerned about what he called the AOLs, the analytical overlays, yeah. and the stray cats. I love that. Although I, I always see Brian Setzer every time he says it. <laughs> and but, America Online. Yeah, and America Online <laughs> yeah. and Brian Setzer. But when he talks about that, and sometimes those can lead you astray, yeah. but other times what Laurie was saying to him is like, those are helping. The idea of aircraft and the idea of the water or a right. large body of water, that is part of the bigger picture here. Although these stray cats apparently aren't always that. I want to I learn about this so bad. So interesting Yeah, yeah well, no, and that's exactly, so now we're getting back to what Laurie had described CRV as a drawer organizer. Yeah. One of those little trays that you put the forks and the knives and the spoons together. It's a drawer organizer for these images and sensations and thoughts, so you have a way to deal with them. The subconscious, we don't know all the mechanisms of that, but it's flooding you with imagery. And, and, and Jed brought this up quite a bit, I think, in his analogy about, because it ties into dream interpretation as, yeah. as well, yeah. in that uh, it's like in a dream, you have a police officer telling you to brush your teeth, make your bed, and go to bed. It's like, that's weird. Why is a police officer telling me that? The police officer is not actually a police officer in your subconscious. It's an authority figure. Right. So it could stand in for your parents. Right. People are like, well, that was a crazy dream. It's like, well, no, your mind is substituting things that it knows it makes sense, and you kind of get it on a subconscious level, but your conscious mind, like, well, that's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of what he's getting at. But I love Lori's analogy of, yes, it's a drawer organizer. It's a way to process this in some kind of controllable manner, as much as we can control about it. Well, and here's the other thing that's interesting to me about it, too, and I had to relate it to try to understand when he was talking about Lori would guide him to this area. Once he would say, not guide in terms of leading, that she doesn't lead at all. What happens is he says... I see X, Y, or Z. And then if she says, okay, let's check out Y. Yeah. Let's go over to Y. Right. Or let's go over to X and go inside of X or tell me more about X. That's what guiding is. And that was really interesting to me because then it's almost like this whole event to me, it reminds me of something that we used to have in commercials when I worked in commercials. Yeah. It's called Frozen Time. Yes. And it was a fad. It was horrible. It was in every commercial forever <laughs> for a while. Remember the Rolling Stones music video? They yes. utilized it a lot. Yes. And, and, and this was a mechanical process. My old boss cut that video, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it took like 200 digital SLRs yeah, I'm lined not, up. I think that Michelle Gondry invented it, the director, yeah, it while like he was him. a student. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, you would take all these still cameras and you put them on like a curved rail and they all snap a picture at the same time, and then you stitch them together in post-production. And yeah. that's how they would do the, where you see the moments where you can you know, rotate around somebody as they're frozen in midair. Yeah, and yeah. the drink is spilling and the water's in the air and the food's falling or whatever. They always throw stuff up in the air when they do this. Yeah. What I thought was interesting about that, eventually they got very sophisticated with how they did it right. to where they could move through the, it used to just be a still shot and exactly. you would rotate around it, but you could move through the area. Yes. And that's kind of what I'm thinking of when I think about what Jed's doing and Lori's there. Ah. You're in this frozen moment 
moment. And right. now she's saying, okay, walk over there. It's like he is controlling time or has stopped time and yeah. he's wandering from object to object. It's also the Blade Runner photograph. Enhanced 322, yeah. 51i, yeah. enhanced, stop, yeah. all right. In, yeah, of course, in this case, you actually have the resolution. Yeah, right. Well, that's <laughs> a, exactly, that's the thing. When he's looking at it, it's kind of that photo, and it's like, there's no depth to it. It's yeah. like, you can't go into the photo. It's flat 2D. Yeah. If it were like a Google 10, you know, gigapixel camera, whatever they have, yeah. then there's a demonstration of it where you can zoom into the Grand Canyon and see somebody holding a coffee cup. Right. That's different. So you have no material to go into. But what you're describing is that you're able to go into these moments in time and kind of poke around in different directions and explore and visualize different things about it. Yeah. It's really a whole confusing thing about how do you, how we view time, our perception of time and reality and space. Yeah, and I also enjoyed what he was saying about dowsing. And some of the stuff that he told me off the record, it was interesting because he talked a little bit about how the dowsing works and how they had used it on some recent projects to actually pinpoint the locations, the exact locations of objects that people were seeking, that their yeah. clients were seeking, yeah. which is just amazing to me. I mean, obviously this is working. They're getting paid to do it. They sure, are consistently sure. being hired. Yeah. If this was all a sham, no one would be hiring them. They would not be well, making no, a living at it. Not so, after this amount of time. Yeah. It would just be, you know, thrown on the ash heap of debunked phenomenon and, and weird 70s things that we were into as kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, here's something I just remembered. As we were doing the Oak Island series, I thought like, yeah, you know what? They should get some remote viewers involved in this just to see where things are pinpointed. And of course, Dan Blankenship claimed he used dowsing to find borehole 10X, which, yes. you know, and the people, the validity of borehole 10X and all that's been kind of debated uh, quite a bit. But there was an opportunity on Facebook where there's an Oak Island research group. Yes. People were sending comments to a guy who was close to the Laginas and the show, I believe. And I yeah. didn't recognize his name, but... I suggested it. And then what's funny is that he said, well, are you talking about remote sensing? No, because that's done with satellites and for mining exploration and I believe oil exploration, but it right. involves tasking satellites. So it's hugely expensive. Yeah. I said, no, 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 this will be maybe a couple thousand bucks to, to hire a team of remote viewers to just dig up some answers. And so I don't think anything happened with that. Of course, you know, oh, just maybe that's, uh, maybe that's, I happen to know for a fact to know that uh, someone who's very close to the Oak Island situation yeah. listens to our show regularly. So maybe uh, we can talk to her about facilitating that. Yeah, well, let's see. I think it would be interesting and fascinating just to see what it has to offer. Yeah, it doesn't, I, it doesn't I agree. hurt. That's my point. The other thing too that he told me about off the air was about the experience that he'd had with his brother, which was a fascinating psychic-like experience. And I, I can't share it because he asked me not to. So yeah. it's very interesting, the skill set that he's developed, which he also said that anyone can develop. But there was one glaring hole in this, and it was after Lori, at her first interview, had mentioned, or you had heard her on Coast to Coast talk about yes. this, and then she mentioned it here earlier in tonight's show, talking about that void or this room with all these aircraft. And I realized that I hadn't really asked Jed about that. And there's, there's two no, reasons. And that was the main thing that you wanted to know. I wanted and to know. I know. Yeah. And there's two reasons I didn't ask. One right. was I was trying very, very hard myself not to lead him. Exactly. I wanted him to give me completely yeah. unfettered information as he had it. Now, even though he's working off these notes from his session, I didn't want to say, hey, what about the room with all the spaceships? Yeah. You know, so I didn't, <laughs> right. but the error that came out of that was that I never asked him about it, no, which I was know. a problem. So, In fairness, you had not heard the original Coast to Coast interview yeah. 
where Lori talked a little bit about that, and that's what perked my ears up of like, what? Yes. You know, I, I got to know more about that. So yeah. uh, we reached back out to Jed about that, and on the day that I reached out to him, he said, I do want to talk about that. And he goes, oh, by the way, I was just talking to Lori a few minutes ago. She wants to come on too. So they graciously agreed for both of them to come on and do one last little segment with us, and here it is. Actually, I have my hypnosis session notes in front of me here inside as i'm being moved along through this i was asked to move into an object that looked like a boomerang near an object that looked like a boomerang or a highway or a large aircraft there was another structure nearby and this is initially i started in the air i'm looking over an island i'm looking down and i see the structures below me and Lori moved me inside the structure. And the ceiling I described the same way as a church with the ability to see the peak of the roof. There's a large window allows one to look out and view the beach and ocean in a distance. Several types of aircraft are present near the highway and in the air. Aircraft from different time errors are present. One is from World War II with the appearance of a Spitfire. The other two aircraft I have never seen before look futuristic. One has the appearance of a rocket with four wings that lands and takes on vertically. Another looks similar to a stealth bomber, but is white and built for much greater speed and agility. Another aircraft is a large modern-day passenger airliner with two jet engines. Now, there was a question in my CRV session, I came up with the term vanishing, and they wanted me to elaborate in the ER session on that. So I was moved to the vanishing, and I see a passenger airliner flying over the ocean with smoke coming out of this left lower back fuselage near one of the engines. And then I was asked to move to what caused it again, and I find myself inside the aircraft and see a device with several components containing a clear liquid with slight yellowish tinge. I go on and describe the container and the cylinders, and they have these spring-loaded devices in them. In the center of the tubes is another spring device, but with a button-like appearance designed to be pushed. The purpose of device is explosive in nature, but unknown if this device is a fuel pump. See, uh, this is my analytic overlay diving in to run the engines or a device built to explode and cause destruction. Okay, now I'm looking below from the aircraft. There's a large body of water like the ocean. The shallow area appears like a coral reef. It appears white beneath the waves. Then as I look again, a feeling comes that this is where the aircraft crashes and the debris field looks white as the broken up fuselage scatters or settles into the ocean. During the session, I found myself briefly in orbit around the moon and Mars. And I think I discussed that earlier with you. Yes, you did. So this aircraft that I get moved to I have it as a feeling as a passenger airliner. Now, that could be analytical overlay or my fantasy coming in. I don't know as nearly as much about what happened with Flight 19 or the rescue aircraft. I do know after I talked to you, I looked it up a little bit. 
And uh, saw that the one aircraft that went out to rescue him had quite a few people on board. 13. And that could easily have been 13, considered yes. to be to me a, be a passenger airliner. Right, yes. So, that was the Martin Mariner Training 49 that flew out of, was that Banana River Forest? Yeah, they left from Banana River Naval Air Station. Yeah. Two, actually, Martin Mariners left, and one, just a few minutes into the flight, seemed to have exploded. Yeah. Or actually, they received contact a few minutes after they left. That was routine, what they call a, an out call. Maybe 20 to 30 minutes later is when the SS Gaines Mills saw the explosion. Yes, but they never found any debris. They found an oil slick, and that plane was never recovered, which is the other thing that's odd about that is that it went down in 78 feet of water, and I can't figure out why they haven't dove on it to look for it. That's interesting because I, the report I gave is shallow area appears like a coral reef. Yeah, it's not. It wasn't That's where the deep. aircraft crashes. Scott and Forrest, I think it's important to point out here that Jed had really no information. So as he's talking about planes crashing and all these things that he's seeing, I want the listeners to know that he started out with just the target is an event, describe the target. So he had no front loading as far as, you know, knowing what, what was going on or that this involved planes or, or anything. You know, he didn't have any other information other than the targets and events. So when he says things like, Lori, moved me inside, he would say, I see such and such a thing. And I would say, could you move into that? Or So I would only use what he gave me. I wouldn't give him any leading or anything like that. Just information he had already spoken. I could say, could you move to that? Or could you tell me more about that? So that I deliberately was not leading him in any way. I wanted pure information from him. Sure, sure. And that structure that you saw that had the window and you said you could see the, the beach through the window and it had cathedral ceilings? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it had objects inside of it? I know I saw objects outside. It. Okay. There were objects inside, but you mean as far as aircraft? Yeah, when you were describing the aircraft, possibly from different periods of time, maybe even futuristic, were they inside that structure or they mm-hmm. were around that structure? or? No, they were outside. Okay. That's what I pretty much remember. The internal part seemed more like a terminal. Okay. I shouldn't say a terminal. It was associated with that, but an aircraft hangar would, I suppose, have cathedral-like possibility. If you had a dirigible in there, they would be in the past. Now, consequently, the reason I was able to ascertain that this was an aircraft was prior to in my CRB session the day before. I had kept coming up with stray cats of Amelia Earhart, the Hindenburg, Roswell, airplane crash, things like that. A parachuting, aircraft crashing into waterfall, or waterfalls, going overboard, people parachuting, things like that. That's where we're by stray cats, which we normally don't report in our um, CRV session report. We usually just go for descriptors. I guess that's all we really wanted to ask you about. Is there anything else that either one of you wants to add on this? I have just one clarification, possibly, on what Jed was describing as, a, as the large building. I first heard you in an interview with Connie Willis on Coast to Coast. It was kind of a teaser for the show, and you said you were going to uh, divulge some very interesting remote viewing revelations, I guess, and one of them was about Flight 19. And I thought I'd heard you say that your star remote viewer had come up with a an image that the planes were together or with other planes from past and future in some kind of area. To me at the time, and of course, I'm, I'm driving and kind of taking mental notes, it didn't sound like a natural place. That could be an interpretation of the ocean floor, that they all went down together, they're in close proximity on a somewhat level surface. 
but from what I was gathering, though, that the final resting place of this and other planes and ships and craft of past, present, and future were somehow being stored somewhere or that they were being grouped by some, by some force. Is any of that correct? Well, the thing is, is I don't know. All I know is my interpretation of what was going on at the time that Jed was doing the um, hypnosis. So here I am, I'm doing hypnosis with him. I'm just listening to what he has to say and I'm trying not to interfere because I don't want to taint it in any way. And what I interpreted him to say, and of course, once you come out of a hypnosis like this, it can be hard for you to remember exactly what happened. A lot of times people forget entirely what happened. I wasn't under hypnosis. I was the hypnotist. My memory of what Jed said was that he was in this place that was like a void and he was seeing ships of all different types, both sea ships and airplane airships, and that they were from all different time periods, including some that were futuristic and some that were old-fashioned, some that looked like they were from the World War II era. And then he described a strange one with the four wings that lifted off vertically, et cetera, et cetera. He went into a lot of detail explaining all these different types of craft that he was seeing. So my interpretation of it was that they were just kind of suspended in this void um, all in one place. And I didn't perceive the void as being a normal spot. I perceived, from the words that he was saying, I perceived it as being someplace, maybe even in another dimension. Now, is that my own adding that? Did I misperceive something? That's very possible. I don't know. But all I know is that at the time that he shared it with me and, the, and I was trying to record it as it was going on, my understanding was that it was kind of an avoid of some sort or someplace where everything was sort of suspended. And as you mentioned, Forrest, I mean, maybe that's underwater. I don't know. But it would be interesting to me that there would be futuristic craft underwater as well. To that point, Lori, that was kind of the impression that I was getting was that there was a interdimensional, I don't know if you call it a resolution, but some kind of a solution to possibly other disappeared craft, not just from the past and currently, but that there's a place that they go to, if to be you know kind of simplistic terms here. And I was wondering, Jed, is that something connected to your interpretation of this large cathedral-like building? Or is that the description of the island and the building you know, with a large volume inside and these other craft, is that separate from this other interpretation? You, this whole thing just sparked one part of memory out of this. And that is, I remember it sort of being like a re these people who were there felt they were privileged to be there working in this place. They had sort of a relaxed atmosphere to it. There was almost like a it's sort of almost like a vacation land to them at the same time. There was actually people working at this place, but there was a very relaxed sense of how they worked. There was no drudgery behind it or anything like that. So it seemed to me that wherever this place was, it didn't have anything like we would know of it in terms of our current construct of going to work day-to-day, punching a time card in and things like that. It seemed to be more of a place that you would go and uh, work on things for um, advancement of technology and humanity and things like that. But now, is this just my fantasy mind operating during a hypnosis session, trying to make sense of what I'm seeing? That I did not include a report, but you guys having talked brought that aspect up. And as far as this bringing back as a temporal attractor, uh, and if there is this type of 
group going on or whatever, then it would be easier for some of them trying to reach out and make contact in forms that we may not know of. So, yeah, I guess the question that I would have is, these crafts that are all in this one place, what is their common ground? Is time irrelevant to this collection? Because you're seeing things from possibly from other worlds or possibly from the future, as well as our own world. And what is the common ground that they all have? Is that they're all missing or they've all been snatched out of their own realities or things are in there that maybe have yet to be invented, but mankind will invent. And then it's going to go missing like MH370 did long after Flight 19, Malaysian Flight 370. Because you mentioned too, when you talked about the flight, the commercial flight, which may have been the Martin Mariner that exploded... When was this session again? February 10th of two years ago. Almost exactly, or 11 months after MH370 disappeared as well, which is interesting. But, um, you know, again, you talk about the AOLs and the Stray Cats, I'm sure, at being a complete amateur at all of this. I'm, I'm just looking for things to connect everything, I guess, which is what you guys have to learn how to, what to embrace and what to avoid embracing. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah, a person doesn't want to run amok too much and then make assumptions <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's well, what we also, have to watch out for. I like that term, run amok. <laughs> but the, as far as everything you just said, Forrest, it's all speculation. We really don't know. We don't have any proof. All I know is that I literally got chills when I was doing, I don't get chills very often when I'm doing uh, hypnosis sessions or ERV or whatever. But I literally got chills because I really got a sense that he was experiencing something that was outside of the normal place and time parameters that we're used to. And so that could be totally my own interpretation on things. It could be my own, you know, I don't, I hate to be putting my, my finger on the scale, as they say. But at the same time, I, that's really the feeling that I got. And I had also been listening to him when his remote viewing sessions for days as well. So all of this was accumulation of listening to Jed doing CRB, ERB, and then having, you know, it all kind of accumulate in this. I'm seeing this place and seeing, you know, all these different craft and, and his descriptions of them. And, and then the description that sounded very much like a void, which also kind of left me in wonder, you know, as far as how often do we see a void in our current reality? I'm kind of in the same line here in that, of course, you know, with Scott and I doing this show, we often have our own uh, fantastical analytical overlays or stray cats, you know, when it comes to our, our reasoning. We always try and look for the most logical explanation, of course, but we run the other gamut to the other end of the spectrum and think about, well, what about the possibilities that aren't so easy to understand or explainable? So when Jed was describing in the final moments of the planes kind of going down in formation, that a bright white or some kind of glowing intelligent object was off one of the wings, I then made the connection with that to this possibly interdimensional place where some things, you know, it sounds like are being worked on or studied. Of course, yeah, that's also my speculation without having anything to do with the remote viewing sessions. But, you know, whereas I see it in um, that there is some kind of connection between the observation of events like this and maybe something that's from another time or place interacting and and studying this. So, 
again, it's like that's going real far afield from what Jed was experiencing and describing. But anyway, that's kind of my wrap up in that. I was thinking that there is some place that is not really the ocean floor. That is a collection place, whether it's being collected intelligently or it just happens when you're in the Bermuda Triangle. That's where things go. But it is not of this world as we know it. Does any of that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. And again, you know, it's fun to speculate. It's fun to think about what could these things mean. And I don't know that we've been able to shed any really concrete light on anything that happened with Flight 19 through our participation in the podcast. But at least we've been able to expand on the mystery because not only did we really try to explore it from a completely blank slate, you know, where we don't front load, we don't tell the viewer any significant information beforehand. So the viewer's going in blind. And that way, any information that comes out that's really significant is even more significant. Well, thank you guys so much for coming back on the show. We really appreciate getting this additional clarification. We know our listeners are going to really enjoy it. And we hope that we can have you back later this year for a show that is specifically dedicated to remote viewing, if you're up for it. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Wow. So that was pretty interesting. I really loved the energy of having both of them on the phone at the same time. That was absolutely no, that was it's the best of all possible outcomes here. You get one, the the other, and then both together. Yeah. uh, To kind of bounce off each other. And And we got super specific on that stuff that you wanted to know about. Yes, finally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I just hate unanswered questions that could somehow be answered. No, I I realized they were very gracious in in donating their time here to this show. Yes. To answer my silly questions or or ones that we put towards them. But it is something that they said. I had to know more about it. Doyle's be, you know, chipping away at me if I hadn't gotten some kind of answer about that. Because to me, again, that's the fascinating thing. What is this place? Where are these planes? What is that? Yeah. Who is running a past, present, and future aviation museum in another dimension, possibly. Yeah, like, what is, with happy little workers. Well, that would see, again, all these descriptors. <laughs> actually, I wouldn't mind that job. Sounds no, like a cool place to work. You would actually love it. it was, <laughs> you know, you're more of an auto guy, but you do love planes. Yeah. And, uh, but again, what is this place? And all of these descriptors go towards setting up the context of that it's a privilege to work there. Yeah. That it's an honor to be doing this type of either it's restoration yeah, or it's research on craft throughout the ages. Maybe, it reminds me yeah. a little bit of defending your life. I feel like it's like, well, you know, if you got <laughs> well, Rip Torn's yeah. job there at the, if yeah, you haven't seen that's a right. Albert Brooks movie. There's different jobs, but it's like, you Meryl know, Street. it makes it otherworldly for me. And, and yeah, that's my own interpretation and that's my own speculation. Yeah but that's the impression I get. It's a form of preservation and study that is, you know, being done by this organization, but the fact that it could be in the future. Yeah. It could be us 300 years in the future, like yeah. a Star Trek kind of thing. Yeah. Or it could be right now, just in another dimension. And I know every time I say that, I know that makes me sound kind of wacky. From but... another dimension. I'm, <laughs> well, I always no, think it's a that... crystal method track, I think. Oh, yes. No, it's... A, the crystal. It's about a state of being in some place that we don't have access to at this moment, other than maybe remote viewing or some kind of ESP mechanism. And that's why I find this fascinating is that we get to have a glimpse into something that is not part of our natural and normal world experience here. Yeah. I think it was really interesting how he was talking about 
the smoke coming out from the fuel sludge of this one aircraft. Right. I, my favorite aircraft that he saw was the one that looked like a stealth fighter, but it was white and oh. built for speed <laughs> and agility. Yeah, and I, exactly. I, what, I mean, what is that? It's something futuristic, possibly, yeah. you know, with fins. It does sound like it's a National Air and Space Museum. Yeah. <laughs> like the Smithsonian. In another dimension. But not In run another by... dimension. And, well, <laughs> maybe it could be the Smithsonian a hundred years from now. You know imagine what? Imagine just at the rate we're going in developing our technology, imagine what's going to be in there. Yeah. And something that we failed to talk about from the second interview segment, by the way, yeah. was the white craft or the thing that he felt like he sensed outside of the airplanes, which I got the feeling that that was like as they were ditching or as they were going down, they were confused by the presence of this highly intelligent being in aircraft. Oh, boy. Yeah. That oh, was For just... me, that's the second parallel to uh, this place where these craft are being kept. Again, that that's from the interview that I first heard, you know, triggering me wanting to know so much more about this is this description of this object or presence. I don't want to say or because that's a trigger word for you, but it's like yeah. some, a couple of things. One, it's it's echoes of Jose Chung's from outer space. Yes. <laughs> we talk about a lot. My favorite so X-Files episode. Yeah, ever. The, these yeah. U.S. Air Force, top secret Air Force personnel are conducting a fake abduction. Alien costumes. abduction. Yeah, yes. They, so they've right. got a UFO. They're dressed up like aliens. And they actually get abducted by some other force. In the middle base. of their you're, fake right, abduction. Right. So yeah, it's great. The angle here is if you're running out of fuel, you're already scared, panicked, you're trying to remember your training. You all have to perform this feat of a water ditch, yeah. which, by the way, has to be done to the best of your ability. Otherwise, you will start tumbling and break up upon impact, which that may have happened here. Yeah. Well, it was high seas. It was right. after dark. All this stuff. And they're out of fuel. Exactly. So I mean, theoretically, they yeah. would ditch while they still had a little fuel, as you pointed out to me. Well, I think that's, that's the optimal condition is that you want to still have engine control over your craft. Yeah. Because it's like Sully Sullenberger. That was such an amazing feat, him taking that giant jetliner and landing it perfectly so the engines didn't catch right. the water, breaking the plane up and tossing it around to keep people alive. But in this situation, you have all these things going on with a very stressful and life-challenging incident. And then what is this off the wing of the plane here? Right. What, uh, what is this object? And I think that's what's going on. There's confusion. There's wonderment. All these other emotions now happening. But just the description of the thing itself. Then it reminds me of Close Encounters, where it's the red dot. Remember the red ball that was uh, yes. chasing the other craft going through yeah. the toll booth? Except it's white. And this thing's built for agility and speed. And it has some kind of inherent intelligence and intelligent control. Yeah. Goes right back yeah. to the Foo Fighters and the idea of... It's a little bit... Yeah. yeah. Now, that one might be maybe more man-made in the theory of its origins, but this thing, is it monitoring this event? Yeah. Is it keeping track of this? Is this connected to the museum in the, the futuristic museum somewhere? Well, and this is the other thing. This, it's a historically significant event. So is it significant not only because it's in our past, but right. it was significant in the future. For this place yeah. where time doesn't seem to matter, it's like, oh, they look at their watch. It's like, uh-oh, Flight 19. <laughs> it's guys, happen. I got to head out. I yeah. got to head out. Right. Go out and meet Flight 19 on its way down. By the way, 50,000 planes are flying over us. Right. right. But if only we had rolling. some vintage World War II aircraft rolling over because it's such yeah. a distinctive sound. These are all great questions. And yeah, we'll never really have the answers to them until we maybe have access to this place. But for me, the interesting thing is this object, whatever it is, this bright glowing object that is off the wing 
of these planes going down, or at least one of them, what is the purpose? If it has intelligence about it and some kind of intelligent control and was designed for being fleet, is it monitoring this event, as you say? And then people might say like, well, why isn't it helping if it's intelligent aliens and they're good people? It's like, well, you know what? When we see a lion taking down a giraffe, when wildlife biologists see that, they don't interfere. They don't help the gazelle out. Right. They're there to monitor and record. And maybe that's the purpose of this thing, to monitor this event that's happening and tag it and bag it for future use in a museum. Right. <laughs> in, a, in a futuristic uh, interdimensional museum. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'd really like to thank Lori Williams and Jed Bendix for coming on the show. Lori and Jed, as well as the remote viewing community at large, maintain that anyone can learn to be a remote viewer. And she offers extensive training on becoming a remote viewer yourself at intuitivespecialists.com. Intuitivespecialists.com. You, like myself, you're thinking about trying it out, aren't you? I am super interested in it. And as I said earlier, I spoke to Lori for nearly an hour after our interview. And the thing she shared with me about recent work her group had done was mind-blowing, man. And I just, and actually, Jed just finished a professional job that is nothing short of amazing. I think the most fascinating part of it all, aside from the fact that it appears to work, is that they have these corporate clients that hire them to solve problems that they can't figure out conventionally, including examining objects that are either inaccessible or that are in unknown locations. And they have frequent stunning success delivering results for these clients, as I said a little bit ago. So it's another thing I've come across since we started this show that I'd always heard about but was incredulous. However, now I have to admit I'm super intrigued. And it takes a long time to learn and a lot of mental discipline, but I'm still seriously considering trying it out. And obviously, if Forrest and I do this, we will both keep you guys posted. On oh, we're going to, yeah, out. we'll try and work it into some kind of uh, show, some kind of experiment that we can document, whether it works or not. Uh, yeah. But it's just fascinating to me. And a few years ago, my dad gave me as a Christmas gift, I think, a copy of Joseph McMonigle's Remote Viewer's Handbook. Oh, right. Which is, it You've mentioned you, it on the show before. Yeah, right? and it's funny hearing Lori talk about it. She has a, a lot of good feelings towards Joe, as she calls him. She was saying, well, his approach is different. You know, he's got a lot of natural ability, and he's he was a former military guy. So his thinking is different about it, but it's a great book because it's a handbook. He yeah. kind of outlays how he would teach you doing it. And what's interesting, you mentioned earlier about Kenpo. I think he also has some interest in the martial arts, and he equates a lot of it as like, well, here at this white belt stage, yeah. you're able to do this. yeah. At your blue belt stage, your golden belt stage, you, you do this. When you get to black belt, these are the things you can expect as far as results. Right. And, so and, what, that's fascinating. Ultimately, yeah. what you have to do is build this set of tools yeah. that once you've got all those tools in place, then ultimately you're able to improvise with them and get whatever you need to do done. It's, it's like anything else. And it's something, again, what I thought was fascinating that Jed said was that even your scientific skeptics or agnostics, if you all call them that, you know, it's like, well, I don't have any ESP abilities. That's kind of silly. And then you get them to try it. It's like, wow, I got some pretty amazing hits. And yeah. They, I don't say they reconsider it, but it makes them wonder. That's right. all I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to make people wonder rather than, and, and maybe open your mind a little bit about there are things and processes that we just don't understand how they work, but there's times when they do seem to work. All right. Well, before we wrap up this bonus episode, which we thank you for listening to, we did want to remind everyone that the story of Flight 19 is about the loss of 27 men and boys who were serving the United States of America in the military and trying to rescue each other, training and trying to rescue each other, and it's a tragedy. So just because it's a mystery doesn't mean that their deaths are any less important. They were fathers, sons, brothers, and cousins, and 
They all died in the service of their country, and each death is a permanent scar for those families that they're all going to have to this day. Yeah, I mean, wherever they are, wherever you think they may be, they just never came back to their families. Yeah. Again, I don't fully understand why we haven't at least looked for the Mariner. We know Mm. pretty much where it went down. Yeah. And with regard to Flight 19, something that I actually didn't mention in the main part of the first three parts of the series was that Larry Cush in his book had made a conclusion, and you should get the book if you really want to know a whole lot more, even than we've said in all these multitudes of episodes. He came to a conclusion that the potential search area was really only just barely touched. Hmm. Because when he did the math and did the fuel calculations and all that kind of stuff, he's got maps in his book where you can see all of the areas that he thought they might have ditched. And then he overlays that with the search area grid. And there's whole gigantic chunks of where they might have gone down that just nobody ever even flew over. Not right, right. So, and that's a huge tragedy too. Even if they survived the ditching and they'd been out in those areas, no one would have ever come. And it's it's sad. You know, to answer your question, too much time has passed. And we have our own modern things to look at. I mean, look at the, the flight of MH370. I mean, that just happened in, in the recent past with an airliner at the cutting edge of aviation technology with all these tracking devices and, and technologies on it. And all we know is that it made some strange turns and did some things that were kind of unexplainable and we still can't find it. Yeah. We have our own mysteries to deal with, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And again, a lot more people with family members that never came back. And I want to remind you that Jed said he saw a modern commercial airliner with two engines when he was visiting <laughs> wherever that place was. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. And so, fascinating. well, that's what I'm saying is that I, I yearn for answers to mysteries. That's kind of why I'm doing this. And I think you too. And you're never going to get those possibly. I'm not sure we get those after we die. Who knows? But this is why this episode and talking with Lori and Jed is so fascinating because maybe it is a glimpse into the unknown. Yeah. And we don't totally understand it. We don't know how it works, but maybe there's some validity in the images and sensations that have been captured. Well, as he said, and we always come around in the end, we have to revisit Occam's Razor, which says, you know, the simplest explanation is likely the true one. Everyone has posited, I think, for the most part, that the biggest mystery with Flight 19 is what happened at the onset. Yes. What caused it to start. Right. How it finished, I think there's an overall consensus that they flew (laughs) until they ran out of gas and ditched in the ocean, even from our remote viewers that we had on the show. That's what's interesting, too, in that unsolicited, that's the conclusion that Jed had, is that there was panic, fear, confusion. They crashed. There was a struggle. They struggled to a survive. Death struggle, yeah, he said. They, as he said, I think some died instantly, perhaps. Some may have lasted a little bit amongst the waves, but eventually all perished. That all falls into a normal pattern, as we know. But then the question remains what happened after they vanished? <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode of our series on Flight 19. We'll be back next week with a new show taking us back to a lesser known but still legendary outlaw of the Old West. We'd like to thank Dell, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron for sponsoring the show, as well as our wonderful patrons at Patreon.com. And a very special thanks to Lori Williams and Jed Bendix. You can sign up for Lori's classes on remote viewing at intuitivespecialists.com. Additional thanks to John Bolin. 
Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Grainger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Grainger. For the ones who get it done. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.